The specter of a storm is haunting the Western world, wrote the black power poet Askia Muhammad Ture in 1965. The great storm, the coming black revolution, is rolling like a tornado, roaring from the east, shaking the moorings of the earth as it passes through countries ruled by oppressive regimes. Yes, all over this sullen planet, the multicolored hordes of undernourished millions are on the move like never before in human history. Ture was pondering the appeal of the East to African-American youth in the aftermath of the 1955 Bandung Conference. Their president Sukarno of Indonesia had told the representatives of 29 African and Asian nations that they were united by a common detestation of colonialism in whatever form it appears. We are united by a common detestation of racialism. Those were the days when Malcolm X met with Fidel Castro at the famed Teresa Hotel in Harlem, and when Malcolm, from his perspective of Islamic internationalism, came to understand the civil rights movement as an instance of the struggle against imperialism, seeing the Vietnam War and the Mau Mau Rebellion in Kenya as uprisings of the darker races and, like the African-American struggle, part of the tidal wave against Western imperialism, ID 2003. If the civil rights movement was a noble enterprise to redeem the soul of America, a challenge to the United States that it live out the true meaning of its creed, in what relation does the black power movement stand to the true meaning of the U.S. creed? While there is a popular narrative engaged across the spectrum of U.S. politics about the society-wide consensus, outside the White South, about the elimination of Jim Crow, can we say that the victory over Jim Crow has made the American dream a reality for all U.S. citizens? Since the Black Power movement is articulated by Stokely Carmichael and the members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, is a product of the post-civil rights world, the obvious verdict is that proponents of Black Power did not think so but there was obviously no consensus outside the ranks of black power proponents. The black political scientist Michael C. Dawson, 1996, argues that black power was a slogan that energized a generation of black youths, troubled their elders, including Martin Luther King Jr., who agreed with many of the goals but saw the slogan itself as divisive, and appalled the great majority of whites. Dawson points out tellingly that as much as the black power slogan divided blacks, the interracial gap was small compared to the interracial gap. According to Aberbach and Walker, 1970, 49.6% of blacks had an unfavorable opinion of the slogan, whereas 80.7% of whites had an unfavorable opinion. Whereas many blacks saw black power as fairness, 19.6%, or black unity, 22.6%, for a 42.2% favorable total, whites viewed it as replacing white supremacy with black supremacy, 80.7%. The differing interpretations of the slogan should not be surprising given the tenor of race relations in the United States. But a question that is seldom asked is, how did the proponents of black power view it in relationship to the American dream or as a potentially society-wide project with implications for all Americans and even for those beyond our borders? Was black power a form of black nationalism or black internationalism? We often forget that Malcolm X's 1963 declaration that we had arrived at the end of white world supremacy was part of a speech made in the aftermath of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, for which he was expelled from the Nation of Islam for violation of Elijah Muhammad's prohibition about speaking out about Kennedy's assassination, saying that it was a case of the chickens coming home to roost. As I argued in the introduction, Malcolm X shone light on the handwriting on the wall, in historical hindsight we can gauge the significance of his discourse. For the leadership of the Nation of Islam, this was an unforgivable transgression, a ratcheting up of agitation by the national spokesperson, which could bring the organization under the scrutiny of federal, state, and local security forces. 
part and parcel of this threat to the Nation of Islam's project stemmed not merely from provocation from ill-considered remarks but on a much deeper level from the wider implications of a violation of the Nation of Islam's prohibition against involvement in the White Devil's political system. While the members of the Nation of Islam's inner circles had long been concerned about Malcolm's venture into the secular arena of world politics, Muhammad had defended Malcolm because he had been largely responsible for the spectacular growth of the organization since his rise to a top leadership position during the 1950s. It was Malcolm X's position in the secular arena of world politics that gave the organization such standing, but it also attracted the attention of law enforcement and surveillance authorities. It was not so much that African-American social movements had eschewed the arena of world politics but that the repression of the left during the onset of the American century consisted especially of the repression of the black left, which had been central to a cosmopolitan U.S. left and which had played a key role in the rise of an internationalist left in the United States during the post-World War I period, a process that continued during both the interwar period and during and after World War II. Chapter 2 details the early development of black internationalism through the life and times of W.E.B. Dubois, and Chapter 3 details the evolution of the new Negro radicals and what I have elsewhere deemed the blackening and intensification of U.S. radicalism, Bush 1999, Chapter 4. While I do not detail the black popular front of the 1930s and 1940s here, it is an important link not only to the black power movement of the 1950s and 1960s but also to the civil rights movement, as described in Chapter 5 thinking about the black power 60s in the age of neoliberal globalization and color blindness. The black power concept seemed to soar into the public imagination in the United States during the late 1960s. The concept reflected in part the increasing polarization of U.S. society during a period when residents of the nation's inner cities were involved in insurrections against the routine abuses to which they had long been subject, there was no longer a sense of resignation to the way things were. The very promise of the civil rights victories from 1954 to 1965 had raised the hopes of the nation's long-oppressed African-American population in an unprecedented manner. In 1964 Barry Goldwater, the most conservative candidate for president in the nation's history, had been vanquished by Lyndon Baines Johnson. During the 1963 March on Washington, King had challenged the nation to live out the true meaning of its creed. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 had been enacted, following the march, and the Voting Rights Act was passed the following year. As indicated in Chapter 5, the nation had reached the height of its glory during the early and mid-1960s as the civil rights movement rode the crest of an exceedingly confident national consensus determined to rid the nation of the disgraceful images of the Jim Crow South. Despite the common roots of the subordinate social status of black people in the South and black people outside the South, the inability of the attack on Jim Crow to address the more deeply rooted problems of the urban ghettos outside the South could understandably increase people's frustration with the routine abuses of power that underlined the slow pace of change in the inner cities of the Northeastern, Midwestern, and Western United States. It was, of course, not so simple. Black agency outside the South had more often than not taken the form of an ideological stance much closer to that of black power than that of the Southern movement. One, as we saw in Chapter 5, on civil rights, and Chapter 3, on the class first, race first debate, black movements outside the South were close observers of the Southern movement, were involved in a great number of supportive actions of the Southern movement, and were organizing to deal with their own problems as well. Nonetheless, with the national spotlight on the events in the Southern states, Scholars and the general public can be forgiven for adhering to a schema that sensed in Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech at the 1963 March on Washington the high point of U.S. democracy and in Malcolm X's nightmare its most fundamental challenge. I argue in this chapter, on the contrary, 
that we miss the larger significance the black freedom struggle against a common set of problems when we envision that they can be so easily separated. I argue that both the civil rights movement and the black power movement of the 20th century, from W.E.B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, Cyril Briggs, and Paul Robeson to Malcolm X, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, Huey Newton, Angela Davis, represent the transcendence of the American dream by articulating notions of social justice that refused to be confined by our national borders and that reached out to a variety of social actors outside of our borders in a manner that is eminently sensible and would be consonant with our common sense if powerful forces did not exist that constrict so many people's views along the lines of a U.S. hegemonic nationalist vision, which severely constricts not only their vision but also their options. The world workers' movements of the 19th and 20th centuries called for the workers of the world to unite. But when revolutionaries called for the formation of a new international after the members of the European Workers' Movement organized in the Second International, all supported their ruling classes during World War I, the civilized world was shocked and incredulous that anyone would have the nerve to call for such sedition. As we have seen throughout this book, the social strata of which the people of African descent in the United States are composed occupied a social location that made them much less susceptible than most of these kinds of U.S. nationalist appeals. After all, they had lived in a state where they had lacked citizenship rights for centuries. What might surprise anyone looking in from outside the United States' racialized social system is that they harbored such feelings of patriotism. This is emphatically not an issue of identity, as is so often assumed, but an issue of the structuring of power and socio-economic position. The caste-like location of the black population as a whole in the United States has led some to view them as an internally colonized group or members of a third world in the United States. Such strata exist in all of the core states of the world system and are often viewed as marginal to the socio-economic mainstream to the extent that they are viewed as a third world within. In the United States this includes people of African descent centered in the African American population, Native Americans, Mexican Americans, Puerto Ricans, and Filipinos. While there are many who argue that the collapse of the Second International at the time of World War I was an indication of the taming of the dangerous classes in the centers of the capitalist world and the subsequent consignment of such dangerous social strata to the more safe and remote periphery of the world system, I argue that the capitalist centers still contain some elements of the dangerous classes, specifically those who are located in what some call the Third World Within, or the so-called colonized minorities. These groups occupy a distinct subordinate and marginal position in all of the societies in which they live, though some of them also are members of the professional managerial strata of the host society. Because of their marginal status, they are likely to be viewed as outsiders despite their sometimes long residence in these societies. Groups of significant size and long residence often consciously constitute themselves as fundamentally threatening of the system of inequality, exclusion, and injustice not only of their societies but of the capitalist colonial world as a whole. Despite the ability of movements based in these populations to force concessions from the defenders of the system to the benefit of some of their number, the bottom layers of these populations have continued as victims of the most obscene oppression, victimization, and subjugation. What makes these populations so volatile is precisely their length of time and low rank and their location in large ghettoized communities, which facilitate a sense of social solidarity among both the lower strata and the members of their group who occupy a higher class position. These aspects of their social situation and social organization contribute to the sense that they constitute an internal colony, which of course has the advantage of proximity to the centers of power and wealth and thus the potential to use its potential to disrupt the status quo in ways that can increase its spaces for operation and maneuver. What I do in this chapter, as in the rest of this book, is use a long time frame, 
which allows us to view what is happening in our inner cities and the potential for the future in ways that are different from those of more mainstream scholars, who are not part of the communities that are the objects of their commentary and or research. During the past 25 or 30 years, the bottom layers of the populations of the core states have been devastated by policies of neoliberal globalization that have reversed the social regimes of the post-World War II period. This withering social warfare has been accompanied by an ideological assault, a veritable scorched-earth strategy so overwhelming in scope and power that when combined with the racist common sense, the assumptions about the inferiority of these very lower strata of the population, that has been with us for the last 500 years, most of the public have entirely lost their bearings and simply cannot see beyond the parameters that have been so insistently and relentlessly locked into the public imagination. For those of us who lived through what we now see as a golden age, the enormity of the changes in the relations of force is hardly conceivable. There is and has been a widespread sense that the social crisis of our inner cities is beyond repair. With one out of three young black men under 30 under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system, with the majority of black children living in homes without fathers, and with a zero-tolerance mentality among the police and much of the general public, there is little optimism in the land regarding our racial dilemmas and therefore the civic peace. While the law and order rhetoric of the 1960s and 1970s was concerned more with social disorder than with crime, by the 1990s people's concern about street crime was a reflection of the state of civil unrest in our society, including a sometimes insurrectionary oppositional mentality, induced at the level of individuals and in forms of social organization that prevail in these communities and articulated through the medium of hip-hop culture. The sense of social crisis is a reflection of the deep bifurcation in our society the borders of which are often roughly associated with the people of color of the inner cities and their middle-class spokespeople and allies, and the whites who occupy a decidedly different and separate turf. Whatever one might think of his poor tortured soul, Tupac Shakur offers important insight on the resulting societal tensions on the track Keep Your Head Up. Last night my buddy lost his whole family it's gonna take the man in me to conquer this insanity it seems the rain'll never let up I try to keep my head up and still keep from getting wet up you know it's funny when it rains it pours they got money for wars, but can't feed the poor say there ain't no hope for the youth and the truth is it ain't no hope for the future and then they wonder why we crazy I blame my mother, for turning my brother into a crack baby we ain't meant to survive, cause it's a setup and even though you're fed up huh, you got to keep your head up. Many have long conceptualized these troubled times as predominantly a crisis of our inner cities, an aberration in an otherwise healthy and thriving society. The 1980s were viewed as a period of renewal for the United States, when we stood tall with the confidence brought to us by President Reagan's reassertion of our national pride and world position, including finally the victory over Soviet communism. The 1980s were also considered to be the beginning of the post-civil rights period, the end of an era of easy progress for African Americans, who were no longer the objects of racial discrimination and could take their place alongside all the other hard-working people in the country. This too was a part of societal renewal since the United States would no longer have a privileged and spoiled section of the population looking for special privileges and handouts. This meant that as a society America could insist on a common standard of behavior and values around issues of family values, discipline, hard work, and thrift. Everyone could carry their own weight, and society did not have to pay the burden of uplift for those who were not committed to the country's national values. What we saw, then, in the inner cities was a crisis of the inner city poor who were spoiled by a liberal culture and liberal social policies that acted as disincentives for people most in need of the habits of discipline, hard work, and thrift, which enabled them to lift themselves up by their bootstraps. These values are all that is needed for success in the United States, as we can see that even new immigrants want only a chance to work at whatever wage they are able to obtain. 
I argue against the grain of our emerging common sense that the crisis of the inner city poor is the depths of a larger and deeper crisis, which includes a crisis of the American dream. The withdrawal of the state from the inner cities is part of a modern nightmare that Malcolm X thought was approaching its endpoint in 1963, since he thought then that we had arrived at the end of white world supremacy. Malcolm had assumed that the imminent rise of a decolonized African America would combine with the decolonization of the rest of the world so that U.S. imperialism and the system of white world supremacy would simply implode. While today this may seem a fantastic scenario, during the 1960s not a few people believed in it. The possibility of such a scenario was not only the source of the spread of liberation ideology within the borders of U.S. society that we saw during the 1960s, it was also the source of an authoritarian, ultranationalist xenophobic ideology that came from the right. It is in this context that we see the emerging dominance of a U.S. political culture with a level of depraved indifference toward the plight of the inner-city poor that is simply unfathomable. Such indifference not only deflects criticism from the more powerful and the more privileged, it also serves to camouflage the true nature of our contemporary crisis, now more than ever. Racism is deeply embedded in the common sense of our society so much so that many do not notice how it serves to camouflage other social relationships, especially class relations and the social relations of capitalism. The social struggles of the 1960s were not fortuitous, as some now imply. They were indeed quite consequential, which explains the price that some are now paying. The brief window of the golden age that some glimpse during that period is not an impossible dream but the contours of a struggle that is still going on. It was not new even then. From the early 20th century, U.S. elites and intellectuals feared the collapse of capitalism and white world supremacy, as we saw in the introduction. They feared that Bolshevism would spread to the United States, especially via the retuning black GIs. It was for this reason that they took such pains to repress the Garvey movement and other sections of the New Negro movement in the 1920s and 1930s. But in the 1950s and 1960s, they faced a block of socialist states and radical nationalist states and movements in the Third World with significant internal populations joining or making common cause with the challenge posed by these radical states and movements, those with foresight took this evolution of events very seriously. All of this is very difficult to understand if one looks only at the surface of these times. The intense passions seem oversized, exaggerated, and lacking in perspective. Surely I must overstate. But take the time to review the scope of this history, which I summarize in the remainder of this chapter and you will see something far more powerful and serious than the myths and misrepresentations that have been spread by the corporate media, the defenders of white privilege, and many ordinary people whose sense of proportion and status were offended by the rebels. The Intellectual Framework for Black Power While we can clearly trace an intellectual framework for the black power movement of the 1960s to any number of prominent black intellectuals of the last 100 years, I would like to examine the work of a prominent sociologist whose intellectual and political work in the 1930s and 1940s directly contradicted the centrist liberal premises of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People NAACP, leadership of the 1950s and 1960s. Howard University sociologist E. Franklin Fraser had been a member of the Black Popular Front during the 1930s and 1940s and had assumed that the wartime struggles for racial and economic justice would be continued in the post-war period. He was one of a few prominent intellectuals who refused to repudiate his association with the left. During the 1950s he waged an unrelenting war of words with the political conformity and anti-communist hysteria that characterized U.S. political culture and with the banality and materialism of its cultural life, now slavishly imitated by the emerging black bourgeoisie, actually the black middle class. 
While there is some reservation about Fraser among the left intelligentsia because of his association with the intellectual discourse about Daniel Patrick Moynihan's report The Negro Family, The Case for National Action, this discourse is a dramatic mismeasure of Fraser's intellectual stance. Fraser's stubborn adherence to the left anti-colonialism of the 1930s and 1940s provided a militant language of critique for the left intellectuals who would come to the fore in the 1950s and 1960s, intellectuals such as Lorraine Hansberry, Malcolm X, and Leroy Jones, Amiri Baraka. Perhaps more important, it was Fraser who not only questioned the facile notion that assimilation was the best option for people of African descent in the United States but also argued that such assimilation would be tantamount to losing their souls. Fraser warned against the country's cultural hegemony over the consciousness of its black subject peoples. He was one of a cadre of intellectuals of African descent, including George Lamming, Amé Césaire, and Frantz Fanon, who pushed in the 1950s for a revolutionary decolonization of pan-European cultural hegemony over the people of African descent and over colonized people everywhere. These intellectuals sought to challenge colonial and civilizational hierarchies that denied the historical agency of people of African descent and that viewed modernity as the sole province of the pan-European world. Furthermore, they challenged the assumption that westernized people of African descent should be in the vanguard of the pan-African movement. They thus posited an intellectual anti-colonialism designed, in the view of Kevin Gaines, to create new possibilities and new structures of feeling among formerly colonized peoples toward a revolutionary decolonization of Western culture, Gaines 2005-508. The truth of the matter is that for most Negro intellectuals, the integration of the Negro means, the emptying of his life of meaningful content and ridding him of all Negro identification. For them, integration and eventual assimilation means the annihilation of the Negro, physically, culturally and spiritually, Fraser 1998. Fraser viewed integration as a limited option for black people in the United States, incapable of addressing the nation's deeply entrenched social inequalities. For Fraser, this was a departure from the more organic social relationships that defined African Americans during the war, an alliance between organized labor and civil rights and solidarity with African anti-colonial movements. It meant as well that African Americans would forfeit their group consciousness, subordinating it to the imperatives of the U.S. nation. Likewise, Julian Mayfield balked at the notion that black writers would enter the mainstream as political and social integration advanced. For Mayfield, the more important issue was that what was called the mainstream was a hegemonic political culture defined by U.S. nationalism and imperialism. While Mayfield favored full and equal citizenship rights, he rejected full identification with the American image, that great power face that the world knows and that the Negro knows better, gains 2005-514. Skeptical of the establishment posture of the civil rights movement, Mayfield settled in Ghana in 1961, a few steps ahead of federal authorities, who were seeking him for his involvement with Robert Williams in the Monroe, North Carolina, NAACP, who were advocating armed defense against Ku Klux Klan terror. At the Conference of the American Society of African Culture, AMSAC, Lorraine Hansberry pointed out the time was running out for a misguided worldwide minority because the universal solidarity of the colored people of the world had arrived. The issue that Hansberry, Mayfield, Fraser, and Dubois confronted most squarely is that integration into a materialistic and repressive Cold War U.S. society would be a threat to African-American cultural traditions, including a history of democratic struggles. Fraser's legacy, found in his last article, The Failure of the Negro Intellectual, is that he raised the key question of whom and what African Americans were becoming in relation to modern political change in the United States and Africa. Could it be that they would simply become unhyphenated Americans? 
or would full citizenship bring them into a unique social situation among Americans, one that would forge a transnational U.S. citizenship and solidarity with African peoples and democratize the United States? Would this have a profound impact on the relationship of the United States to the nations of the dark world? Gaines 2005-527? Fraser thinks that the distinction between integration and assimilation is an important one. He argues here that the integration of the Negro into American society is only the first stage of dealing with the problems of Negroes in American society. A more important issue for Fraser is the assimilation of Negroes into American society, which implies not a whitening of the Negro in her slash his place, low social class position on the margins of the U.S. American mainstream, but the fusing of the black stripe into the social, economic, cultural, and political domains of U.S. society. Integration means the acceptance of Negroes as individuals into the social and economic mainstream of American society. This would imply the gradual dissolution of the black community and the decline of its associations, institutions, and other forms of associated life that have historically constituted the black community in the United States. So integration involves more than just individuals, it involves the organizational and institutional life of the black community. Moreover, assimilation involves integration in the most intimate phases of the organized social life of a country and thus leads to complete identification with the people and culture of the community in which the social heritages of different people become merged and fused. The black community has the disadvantage of a conformist and supplicant intellectual class who simply wants the approval of whites. They therefore do not provide leadership, nor do the institutional leaders in the community, which is the reason for the popularity of the black Muslims, according to Fraser. Black youth were in rebellion against the traditional leadership, who had usually acted as mediators between the black and white communities. Since these leaders seek only to integrate and assimilate into American society as it is, they have little grasp of the necessity to address the economic and social organization of American life. The use of the Gandhian philosophy of nonviolence is an example of the attempt of the Negro intellectual to escape from the Negro heritage. Langston Hughes is named as an exception to this tendency. They have written no novels or plays about Denmark Vesey or Harriet Tubman, even today they run from Robeson and Dubois. Fraser holds that there is no parallel in human history where people have been subjected to such mutilation of body and soul. While African intellectuals realize the impact of colonialism and see their most important tasks as the mental, moral, and spiritual rehabilitation of the African, African-American intellectuals are seduced by dreams of final assimilation and cannot for the most part see beyond these aspirations. Negro intellectuals have failed to dig down deeply into the experience of the Negro and provide a transvaluation of that experience so that the Negro can have a new self-image or a new conception of her or himself. It was the responsibility of the Negro intellectual to provide a positive identification through history, literature, art, music, and the drama. Frazier 1998-65. He feared the spiritual, cultural, and physical annihilation of the Negro who viewed their place in a Euro-centered world from the standpoint of what Secoutere, France Fanon, and Leopold Sengler referred to as the complex of the colonized. Thus Fraser calls on Negro intellectuals to cease being obsessed with assimilation. They must come to realize that integration does not mean annihilation, self-effacement, and an escape from identification with the Negro race. Fraser seeks to emphasize a point made elsewhere that the American Negro has little to contribute of Africa as had previously been argued by black nationalists, but that Africa in achieving freedom could possibly save the souls of Negro Americans by providing them with a new self-image and a new sense of personal dignity, Fraser 1998-66. Black Internationalism and the Political Origins of Black Power 
most observers of African-American history can trace the development of institutionalized black power to the late 18th century formation of the Free African Society and the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Most readers are familiar with Kamazi Woodard's contention that the ideas of modern black power were crystallized in the National Negro Convention movement from 1830 to 1861. In chapters 2 and 3 we discuss the role of Dubois and the New Negro Radicals in the story of black internationalism. I would like to turn now to the interwar black movement and the origins of black power. George Padmore describes Dubois as the father of Pan-Africanism, who differed from Garvey in the sense that his Pan-Africanism was viewed as an aid in the promotion of national self-determination among Africans under African leadership, for the benefit of Africans, whereas Garvey envisioned Africa as a place for colonization by Western Negroes who would be under his personal domination. However, Padmore readily saw, as did Dubois, that the Garvey movement was a people's movement rather than a movement of intellectuals. Padmore holds that the Soviet interest in black people is based on their belief that black people are revolutionary expendables in the global struggle of communism against Western capitalism. They are accorded to tag along with the white proletariat and thus swell the revolutionary ranks against the imperialist enemies of the Soviet fatherland. Padmore 1972-268-269 If this sounds like Christian-style anti-communism, it might make sense to at least see how Padmore supports this argument. Too, it goes to the very crux of his framing of the political question of Pan Africanism or communism. We touched on this issue in Chapter 3, on race first versus class first. Padmore points out that the urban working class in Tsarist Russia was a small part of a Russian empire that stretched from Central Europe to the Pacific and from the Black Sea to the Baltic Sea, an empire that was overwhelmingly peasant in a culture partly European and partly Asiatic. The heterogeneity of the Russian population inspired the formation of a political program that promised land and freedom from usury to the peasants and the right of self-determination to the subject nationalities and racial minorities living under Tsarist rule, Padmore 1972-269-270. Padmore points out that Lenin had argued for these positions against the other left-wing organizations in the Russian Empire and against considerable opposition among his Bolshevik comrades as well. On the European side of the empire, this offer was accepted, the Finns, the Poles, the Lets, and the Lithuanians. On the Asiatic side the subject nationalities were reorganized into so-called independent federated and autonomous territories, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Padmore points out that the offer of self-determination to the non-Russian nationalities had a tremendous psychological impact, inspiring confidence in the Bolsheviks at a time when the enemies of the new regime were waging war to restore the Tsarist Empire. The newly emancipated colored people thus supported the Soviet power against the white guard aristocrats, who were receiving financial assistance from Britain and France, Padmore 1972-271. Padmore's analysis of the Bolsheviks' turn toward Asia is based not only on geopolitical strategy but also on a cultural affinity or perhaps a geocultural strategy. Here Padmore quotes the scholar Upton Close, 1927, author of The Revolt of Asia, The End of the White Man's World Dominance. The Russian peasant and even the proletarian city dweller exists on much the same standard as the Asiatic. The Mujik with his shirt tails out is a cultural kinsman to the Chinese in the Coolie Coast. Both live on a dirt floor, break the ground with a wooden plow, and eat cabbage and grain. The Chinese keeps his fire under the raised portion of the floor, and the Russian puts his in the wall. The Chinese has much more of civilization behind him and of the coat of the gentleman in him, but both have kindly humor hospitality and the cruelty that comes out of squalor when aroused. Thus Russia followed her destiny towards Asia, not under the banner of the old imperialism but that of the new idealism. Or, 
if that word in connection with the Soviet system seems inadmissible, one may call it enlightened imperialism, Padmore 1972-278. In the meantime the communist movement in the United States had recruited black cadres during the period of the emergence of the African Blood Brotherhood. As we saw in Chapter 3, the major movement of African Americans by far was Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. Padmore argues that the communist movement learned from their analysis of the Garvey movement that a key issue would be the brandishing of the right of self-determination to the African-American people, but in the form of Stalin's formula, which located the African-American nation in the Black Belt South. Padmore attributes this theory to a former Finnish university professor of Marxist sociology, Dr. Otto Kusinen, at the time one of the secretaries of the Comintern. This was a disastrous policy from Padmore's perspective, but more important it was an indication of lack of principle among the communists, which was expressed over the 1930s and 1940s in a series of twists and turns that alienated them from many activists in the African-American communities. Padmore himself resigned from the Comintern when it disbanded the International Trade Union Congress of Negro Workers, of which he was secretary. Upon learning of the decision in August 1933, Padmore immediately resigned his position, but there was no public reaction to his resignation until the following April. Padmore had argued that he had been called on to endorse the new diplomatic policy of the Soviet government to put a break on anti-imperialist work against British, French, and U.S. imperialism in favor of the United Front against fascism. Padmore argued that Britain and France were the main imperialist countries in Africa and that the United States was the most racist country in the world. This new policy meant the sacrifice of the young national liberation movements in Asia and Africa, he therefore had no choice but to resign from the Communist International. Lewis 2002-49. After the break with the Comintern, Padmore moved to London, where his childhood friend C.L.R. James resided. In 1937 members of the International Friends of Abyssinia met in London to form the International African Service Bureau, the forerunner of the Pan-African Federation. Principal officers included Padmore, the West African trade unionist Wallace Johnson, Chris Jones of Barbados, C.L.R. James, Jomo Kenyatta, and D.R. McConan. Padmore 1972-124. 3. The International African Service Bureau organized meetings, conferences, and protests and wrote letters to advance the cause of African independence, Lewis 2002-49. In 1944 CLR James gave Kwame Nkrumah a letter of introduction to Padmore, with whom Nkrumah became fast friends. Over this last period Padmore had been observed to be more cynical about the role of the working class and of anti-imperialists in the imperialist countries and began to argue that the liberation of the colonized people would be the work of the colonized people themselves. Early in 1945 Padmore suggested that it was time for another Pan-African Congress. This would bring together Padmore, Nkrumah, Dubois, Jomo Kenyatta, and Jaya Wachaku of Nigeria.4. The 5th Pan-African Congress was distinguished from the previous Congresses in the words of Kwame Nkrumah, who suggested that the Congress participants were practical men and women of action and not, as was the case at the four previous conferences, merely idealists contenting themselves with writing theses but quite unable or unwilling to take any active part in dealing with the African problem. Like Garveyism, the first four conferences were not born of indigenous African consciousness. Garvey's ideology was concerned with black nationalism as opposed to African nationalism, Tunteng 1974-37. What finally emerged in Africa was neither pan-Africanism nor communism. Communism was never a powerful force in Africa, and despite the formation of the Organization of African Unity, it was much more a federation of sovereign states cooperating in matters of mutual interests than any kind of movement for a United States of Africa, 
as Nkrumah called for in Africa must unite and as Padmore calls for briefly at the end of Pan-Africanism or Communism, Padmore 1972-356. When Leopold Senghor, Gatson Monerville, and Amé Césaire addressed the President of France and others on April 27, 1948, the 100th anniversary of the abolition of slavery in France, all three used the memory of slavery, revolution, and emancipation to oppose then-current colonial practices, Despite the official posture of French tolerance and benevolence. Five Monerville and Senghor wanted the government to honor the tradition of abolition by using the same principles in the present. Césaire, in contrast, viewed plantation slavery, colonial violence, and anti-black racism as part and parcel of the modern French political order, inscribed in its social relations, Wilder 2004-32. Racism was part of the rationality of the French social order, not an irrational aberration. Césaire did not view 1848 as the victory of enlightened republicanism over colonial backwardness, the radical currents to the republican tradition had fallen victim to the revolution's dominant bourgeois colonial elements. During the 1920s a heterogeneous community of Antillean and African intellectuals, professionals, and labor organizers consolidated in Paris. They debated one another and produced journals and associations out of which would emerge the negritude movement in the late 1930s. Césaire was a member of these groups who sought to join demands for political equality with demands for cultural recognition. Césaire sought to reconcile humanism and nativism. After the liberation of Martinique, Césaire became an advocate of political assimilation and was one of the architects of the 1946 law transforming Martinique, Guadeloupe, Guiana, and Tunian into formal French departments. France Fanon, who had worked on Césaire's successful campaign to become a member of the French National Assembly, would later become Césaire's student. Césaire was paradoxically an unrelenting critic of the colonial order and a French political official. A new generation of Antillean activists therefore both celebrated him and criticized him. This, of course, was not unlike the position of some members of the U.S. black power generation after some of their political successes. Bonding and the historical grounding of black liberation in the post-war era Between 1947, when India won independence, and 1963, when Kenya and Zanzibar won independence, virtually the entirety of the dark world were able to free themselves from the bonds of colonialism. This was a time, one might say, when the specter of national liberation haunted the imperialist powers. Concretely this process was facilitated by the weakening of the imperialist nations in Europe, which made resistance to imperialist power possible. Though the threat of a united front against the colonial and neo-colonial powers brandished by the Bandung Conference of 1955 did not materialize, the decolonizing process that did materialize represented the rise of the dark world that had been the coin and trade of a number of African-American leaders, from Dubois and Garvey to Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X, Wolfenstein 1981-234. In 1947 Dubois petitioned the newly formed United Nations Commission on Human Rights arguing that prolonged policies of segregation and discrimination had involuntarily welded the mass of black people almost into a nation within a nation. Blacks lived in a state of extreme segregation with their own schools, churches, hospitals, newspapers, and many business enterprises. The United States, of course, denied the reality asserted by Dubois, but with the location of the United Nations in New York City, the problem of the African-American people had become internationalized. In the decade prior to the April 1955 meeting of 29 nations in Bandung, Indonesia, Millions of people emerged from the shadow of European colonialism through the pursuit of anti-colonial social struggles. India, Burma, Indonesia, Egypt, and China were among those who achieved independence during this period. 
The 29 countries meeting in Bandung represented more than half of the world's population at that time, 1.4 billion people, late in 2000-70. Richard Wright, living in exile in Paris, Adam Clayton Powell, and Carl Rowan were prominent African Americans who attended the conference. Neither Robeson nor Dubois was able to attend because of travel restrictions imposed by the U.S. State Department. Mainstream coverage of the conference in the United States was limited and negative in tone. The January 1, 1955 issue of Newsweek magazine characterized the conference as an Afro-Asian combination turned by communists against the West. Right 1956-74. The U.S. black media commentary on the conference was celebratory. The meeting in Bandung was deemed the most important international meeting in the history of the world, with incalculable implications for blacks in the United States and throughout the African diaspora and for colored people everywhere, late in 2000-71. Richard Wright, the African-American writer and author of the well-known novel Native Son, attended the 1955 conference and went on to write a book about it. The despised, the insulted, the hurt, the dispossessed, in short, the underdogs of the human race were meeting. Here were class and racial and religious consciousness on a global scale. Who had thought of organizing such a meeting? And what had these nations in common? Nothing, it seemed to me, but what their past relationship to the Western world had made them feel. This meeting of the rejected was in itself a kind of judgment upon the Western world. Right 1956-10 Many of us will recall a few years back the flourishing of intellectual and political activity around the 50th anniversary of the April 1955 meeting of African and Asian nations in Bandung, Indonesia. The editors of the special edition of Radical History Review commemorating this event, Antoinette Burton, Augusto Espiritu, and Fanon Che Wilkins, tell us that when they submitted a proposal for a panel on the fate of nationalism in the age of Bandung to the Program Committee of the American Historical Association, the largest professional organization for historians in the United States, for the 2005 annual meeting, they were told that no one on the committee had ever heard of it. Burton, Espiritu, and Wilkins note that in 1963 Malcolm X had offered the Bandung meeting as an organizational model for African Americans searching for political allies in the Third World at home and abroad, Burton, Espiritu, and Wilkins 2006. They note also that throughout what they refer to as the long 1960s, black freedom movement activists frequently referenced Bandung, since this was a period in which Afro-Asian solidarity efforts reached a fever pitch in the U.S. New Left. Sadly this history is not widely known outside of those who were involved at the time. If North Americans know about it at all today, it is most likely through the account of Richard Wright, whose 1956 book, The Color Curtain, captured the epic meanings of Bandung for peoples of color around the world as indicated above. Wright, a former member of the CPUSA, one of the most politically sophisticated intellectuals of his time, argued that this was a kind of meeting that no anthropologist, sociologist, or political scientist could ever dream of staging, it was too simple, too elementary, cutting through the outer layers of disparate social and political and cultural facts down to the bare brute residues of human existence. Only brown, black, and yellow men who had long been made agonizingly self-conscious, under the rigors of colonial rule, of their race and their religion could have felt the need for such a meeting. The agenda and subject matter had been written for centuries in the blood and bones of the participants. The political ideologies of left and right mattered much less than that fact that they lived in Asia and Africa, right 1956, 11-12. Wright's excitement is palpable here, as it must have been at the conference itself, when Sukarno of Indonesia opened the proceedings with the declaration, this is the first international conference of colored peoples in the history of mankind. Quoted in Wright 1956-117. Sukarno continued. All of us, I am certain, 
are united by more important things than those which superficially divide us. We are united, for instance, by a common detestation of colonialism in whatever form it appears. We are united by a common detestation of racialism. And we are united by a common determination to preserve and stabilize peace in the world. We are often told colonialism is dead. Let us not be deceived or even soothed by that. One say to you, colonialism is not yet dead. How can we say it is dead, so long as vast areas of Asia and Africa are unfree? And, I beg of you do not think of colonialism only in the classic form which we of Indonesia, and our brothers in different parts of Asia and Africa, knew. Colonialism has also its modern dress, in the form of economic control, intellectual control, and actual physical control by a small but alien community within a nation. It is a skillful and determined enemy, and it appears in many guises. It does not give up its loot easily. Wherever, whenever and however it appears, colonialism is an evil thing, and one which must be eradicated from the earth. Africa Asia speaks from Bandung 1955. Sengar argued that Bandung represented the death of the inferiority complex of colonial peoples, Florida 1998-208. For Burton, Espritu, and Wilkins, appreciating the ongoing significance of the spirit of Bandung for post- and anti-colonial politics would be an important task for intellectuals, activists, and supporters of the struggles of the people of the Third World and the Third Worlds within. There is little doubt that Bandung represents a watershed moment in world history and that a fuller history of that fateful week in April could and should be written. What Burton, Espritu, and Wilkins seek to do in this project is to offer a re-reading of Bandung from the perspective of Third World nationalisms as they echoed through a variety of metropolitan spaces, the United States prime among them. Carrie Fraser, 2003 argues that the Bandung Conference ushered in a new era of international relations since it marked the determination of nations of color to end colonial rule in the non-European world and its corollary of white world supremacy. Fraser holds that the creation of the non-aligned movement at Bandung was discomforting to the United States since it subjected its domestic practices vis-a-vis -vis citizens of color within their own borders to the scrutiny of the world public. It also brought to public attention Washington's colonial designs in the Caribbean and the Pacific, as well as its willingness to underwrite European imperial designs. As the United States rose to the commanding position in the world system, the rise of Bandung complicated the U.S. effort to manage an international system that was increasingly shaped by the politics of race and anti-colonialism. As Malcolm X would argue throughout this period, this was no place more the case than within the borders of the United States itself. There can be little doubt that the politics of race and Bandung imposed limits on the capacity of the United States to influence the evolution of the international order. One need only mention some of the more important personalities in the movement to get a sense of this, Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt, Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, Jawaharlal Nehru of India, Sukarno of Indonesia, Marshal Tito of Yugoslavia, and Cho Enlai of China. Wallerstein explains that the 1956 First World Congress of Black Writers and Artists in Paris was a watershed event in closing the gap that had existed between the various circuits of Pan-Africanism, the British colonial subject in Africa and the Caribbean, the French colonial subjects in Africa and the Caribbean, and the subjects, of African descent in the United States. Ali Diop, editor of Présence Africaine, called for unity among those convened, whether one believed in God or was an atheist, whether Christians, Muslims, or Communists, Wallerstein 1967-15. Amy Césaire, a member of the French Communist Party from Martinique, added to Diop's frame that there are two ways to lose oneself, by segregation within the walls of the particular or by dilution in the universal, Wallerstein 1967-15. For Césaire the universal is one that is rich with the particular, rich with all the particulars, 
a deepening and a coexistence of the particulars, Wallerstein 1967-15. This was a time when nationalist movements were taking root everywhere. Wallerstein points out that the independence of the Indian subcontinent had had profound consequences for English-speaking Africa. For French-speaking Africa the struggle in Indochina was a formative experience that transformed the realm of the politically possible. The Bandung Conference of April 1955 was an assertion of strength and identity vis-à-vis -vis European colonialism. It transformed the sense of solidarity among the colonized into the Afro-Asian concept that Wallerstein argues would play a role for ten years to come. In Africa this new sense of solidarity brought together North African and Sub-Saharan African states, as well as French-speaking and English-speaking Africans. The U.S. Black Power Movement and the Spirit of Bandung Nikhil Singh points out that at the first Congress of Black Artists and Writers in Paris in 1956, Césaire generated considerable controversy among the African-American delegation when he argued that even our American brothers, as a result of racial discrimination, find themselves within a great modern nation in an artificial situation that can only be understood in reference to colonialism. Césaire's definition included colonial, semi-colonial, and paracolonial situations, which encompassed independent nations such as Haiti, racial minority populations such as U.S. blacks, and people suffering under colonial rule, Singh 2004-174. As I indicated above Dubois and Robeson had been unable to attend the Congress because the State Department would not allow them to travel. But Dr. Dubois refused to be silenced and sent a letter to the Congress about why he could not attend and cautioned that any Negro American who travels abroad today must either not discuss race conditions in the United States or say the sort of thing which our State Department wishes the world to believe, Singh 2004-175. So there was furious debate about the conditions of African Americans, the degree of racial progress in the United States, and so forth, with the U.S. delegates pretty much taking up the positions that Dubois had predicted. Richard Wright was an exception. He was silent on the colonialism issue in the United States but unleashed a ferocious attack on African culture as backward and primitive. Césaire argued against the valorization of European culture, saying that he had a different idea of the universal, a universal that is rich with all that is particular. He articulated a critique of the false universalism of the Western world that Wright himself would later reflect in White Man, listen. But even then Wright claimed to be a man of the West. But the moment that Césaire saw it had not yet arrived, nor is it merely a moment. The concept of a post-colonial era assumes that the dismantling of the official apparatus of colonialism is the same as the abolition of colonialism, or as others would say the coloniality of power. Colonialism required a discourse in which everything that is good, advanced, and civilized is measured in European terms. The project of colonial conquest requires not only the physical subjection of a population, but the naturalization of that conquest through the imposition of a Eurocentric framework on knowledge. As Minilog, 2007, argues, this hegemonic identity politics, seizing the mantle of universalism by conquest denounces opposing identities as fundamentalist and essentialist. As I indicated in Chapter 3, Mignolo argues in much the same way that Césaire argued over 50 years ago, that one must speak from the identities that have been allocated in order to denaturalize the imperial and racial construction identity in the modern world system. Bernard Megabain points out that the post-World War II period saw the rise of a collision between the historical treatment of blacks in the United States and the attitude that the United States would have toward an independent Africa and the black world as a whole. Six one cannot understand the relationship of African Americans to Africans, however, without understanding the historical development of that relationship. Megabain argues that blacks could not have a sense of security in a world that degraded and rejected them. 
given the negative political psychology that pervaded much of the upper strata of African-American society, such as it was, attitudes toward Africa reflected this degradation. So blacks initially expressed their interests in Africa in terms of their duty to regenerate Africa and Africans. For Mega Bain, Ethiopianism, Pan-Africanism, and Garveyism all include sentiments that can be explained only in terms of the nature of white hegemony over African Americans. This, I would argue, is true of what Wilson Moses refers to as the classical age of black nationalism, which ends with the demise of the Garvey movement. However, the race-first radicals in the New Negro movement would eventually set African America on a new course. By the 1920s the impact of those intellectuals profoundly affected by Dubois had in turn transformed the doctor in ways that moved him far beyond the Fabian socialism, social imperialism, of his turn-of-the-century persona. By the 1960s black radicals, represented most ably by Malcolm X, had come a long way. Megabane interrogates how Malcolm X views two opposing strategies for African-American advancement and the implications for a changing sense of identity. Though Malcolm was the individual most capable of grabbing the spotlight, he was not alone in this issue. In 1959 Hansberry told CBS News correspondent Mike Wallace that the sweep of national independence movements globally was inextricably linked to the political initiatives of black Americans engaged in similar, and sometimes overlapping, struggles for freedom, full citizenship, and self-determination, Wilkins 2006-192. According to Fanon Che Wilkins, this stance dates from the early period of the civil rights movement. In this way Wilkins shows that the Cold War did not obliterate the black left but fostered a split with centrist liberals in the NAACP. Wilkins does not accept the assertions of Gerald Horne, Brenda Gale Plummer, and Penny Von Eschen that the unanimity of anti-colonial opinion among African Americans during the early 1940s was shattered by the Cold War, resulting in the cutting off of 1960s activists in the SNCC and the Black Panther Party from an older generation of black radicals who had been engaged in anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist critiques of U.S. and European imperialism. Seven Wilkins argues, as do Ian Roxborough Smith and others, that a significant presence of black left figures from the 1940s facilitated an intergenerational exchange of ideas and practices that built on the legacy of black internationalism. Eight Hansberry was part of that contingent during the 1950s until her death in 1965. During this period that preceded the SNCC's assumption of the black power stance, Hansberry remained committed to an anti-colonial-slash-anti-imperialist political project that challenged the supremacy of American capitalism and advocated for some variant of socialist development at the height of McCarthyism and beyond, Wilkins 2006-192. While Hansberry, like her contemporary France Fanon, anticipated the dangers of neocolonialism that would confront the newly decolonized states of Africa and Asia, her views were reflective of the radical spirit of the 1955 Bandung Conference. Malcolm's position was slightly different, however, since he anticipated that the decolonization of African America would shatter the power of the U.S. hegemon and in concert would bring about the end of white world supremacy. It is for this reason that Malcolm's logic seems unassailable to just about anyone who really listens to him. He argues with absolute certainty and humility, quite a combination, that those who believe in civil rights spend most of their time trying to prove that they are Americans, confining themselves to domestic issues in the United States viewed from the perspective of a minority. When these people look on the American stage they see a white stage. This manner of framing African-American identity simply reinforces the minority perspective, which is the perspective of an underdog who is impelled toward a begging, hat-in-hand, compromising approach, Megabane 1987-187. For Malcolm X, black nationalists are more interested in human rights than in civil rights. They do not look upon themselves as Americans. 
they look upon themselves as a part of dark humankind. They see the whole struggle not within the confines of the American stage, but they look upon the struggle on the world stage. And in the world context, they see that the dark man outnumbers the white man. On the world stage the white man is just a microscopic minority, Megabane 1987-187. Megabane also cites Harold Isaacs, who argued, the downfall of white supremacy system in the rest of the world made the survival of it in the United States suddenly and painfully complicated. It became our most exposed feature and in the swift unfolding of world affairs, our most vulnerable weakness. When hundreds of millions of people all around look in our direction it seemed to be all that they could see, Megabane 1987-188. Finally, Megabane quotes Nehru speaking at a private meeting with black and white civil rights leaders, at the behest of Ralph Bunch and Walter White, whenever I warn against acceptance of Soviet promises of equality because they are so frequently broken. I am answered quite often by questions about America's attitude toward dark-skinned people. The people of Asia don't like colonialism or racial prejudices. They resent condescension. When Americans talk to them about equality and freedom, they remember stories about lynchings. They are becoming increasingly aware that colonialism is largely based on color, and for the first time in the lives of many of them they realize that they are colored. Emerson and Kilson 1965-1059, Megabane 1987-189. What Megabane has done is to reframe our gaze on the impact of the U.S. system of white supremacy on African Americans and on their relations with the entire dark world. He also points out that the African American espousal of black nationalism is the heart of the revolt against white world supremacy. Megabane then argues that the Ethiopianism, Garveyism, and Pan-Africanism of the early 20th century may have been poor efforts, small fissures in the dry crust of white hegemony, but they revealed an abyss. Beneath the apparently solid surface of world domination by whites they showed oceans of liquid matter only needing expansion to rend into fragments the hold of white supremacy, Megabay 1987-193. It was Malcolm X more than any other leader or intellectual of that period who was a tireless supporter of what has been called the spirit of Bandung. He popularized this notion on the black street. He pointed out. It has been since the Bandung conference that all dark people on the earth have been striding toward freedom. But there are 20 million blacks here in America yet suffering the worst form of enslavement, mental bondage, mentally blinded by the white man, unable now to see that America is the citadel of white colonialism, the bulwark of white imperialism, the slave master of slave masters. At Bandung they had to agree that as long as they remained divided a handful of whites would continue to rule them. But once our African, and, Asian brothers put their religious and political differences into the background, their unity has had sufficient force to break the bonds of colonialism, imperialism, Europeanism, which are all only diplomatic terms for the same thing, white supremacy, Carson 1991-174-175. Malcolm continued his presentation, indicating that 20 million blacks in the United States are also kept divided and ruled by the very same white man. But blacks in Harlem are so riven by petty differences that they cannot come together to confront the common enemy. Blacks in Harlem, Malcolm X argued, should hold their own Bandung conference. Like Malcolm X, the Revolutionary Action Movement, RAM, emphasized the spirit of Bandung in its analysis and theorizing. Ram argued that the major contradiction in the world was between Western imperialism and the revolutionary people of color, the Bandung world. It held that black people in the United States were part of that Bandung world. This included all people of color from Asia, Africa, Latin America, Central America, the Caribbean, North America, the Indian subcontinent, and the Pacific Islands, Ahmad 2006-271.
The structure of power within these coordinates gave a clear international dimension to the social conflicts and social struggles in this world. It is noteworthy that Ram shares the language of Malcolm X in its analysis of this situation, calling for unity against the common enemy. Indeed, Ahmad points out that Ram derived this position from Malcolm X. During its early years, Ram representatives wrote a letter in support of the Vietnamese National Liberation Front, declaring Ram's solidarity with their struggle and proclaimed the organization's independence from the foreign policy of the United States. They viewed their closest international allies as the revolutionaries in China, Zanzibar, Cuba, Vietnam, Indonesia, and Algeria. They viewed their approach as a revision of traditional or Western Marxism, which they deemed Bandung humanism. They would later drop this term and use black internationalism or revolutionary black internationalism instead. After 1966, Ahmad points out, the documents of the movement focused more on domestic struggles. It was at this point that Ram emphasized its standpoint as one of revolutionary black nationalism in contrast to both the bourgeois reformism of the early Dubois and the bourgeois nationalism of Marcus Garvey and Booker T. Washington. Ram leaders declared themselves the vanguard of the black underclass. They supported the black pride component of bourgeois black nationalism but opposed the emphasis on black capitalism. Ram argued that nationalism was the natural doctrine of the black working class and that their advocacy of revolutionary black nationalism would rouse the anger of the black working class to destroy the bourgeoisie. Ahmad 2006-274 Ahmad traces the development of the black radical movements of the 1960s and 1970s to Ella Baker who from the late 1930s served of the staff of the NAACP in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and was the organizer of the SNCC, Queen Mother Moore, who was a member of Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association and the Communist Party of the USA and who worked with Richard Moore in the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, James and Grace Boggs, and Malcolm X.9. Ahmad identifies three periods in the development of Malcolm's political thought. From 1952 to 1962. Malcolm was a leading member of the Nation of Islam and adhered closely to its version of black nationalism. During this first period, Malcolm X slowly returned to aspects of the black nationalism of his childhood, when his parents were members of Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. In 1962 Malcolm X evolved toward a secular form of black nationalism, and during that time he began to subtly differentiate himself from the theology of the Nation of Islam. This period reached its highest development in the spring of 1964. But with his trip to the Middle East and Africa in April and May 1964, he began his evolution toward Pan-African internationalism. Ahmad provides important insight into the evolution of Malcolm X by telling the story of Malcolm's political growth while in prison. While Malcolm's autobiography emphasizes the influence of Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, Ahmad tells how the imprisoned Malcolm X was influenced by the activities of Paul Robeson who addressed a meeting of the Civil Rights Congress at Madison Square Garden attended by 10,000 people at which he called on black people to resist the draft and not fight against their Asian brothers in the Korean War. Malcolm wrote a letter from prison to President Truman indicating his support for Robeson. Ahmad points out that Malcolm also supported and embraced the efforts of Paul Robeson and William Patterson, chairman of the Civil Rights Congress, to petition the United Nations to charge the United States for genocide against African Americans. Ahmad 2007-24 there is, of course, a much longer legacy here that we have already discussed in previous chapters. Malcolm X did not emerge from the head of Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam but was the product of a profound culture of opposition that had long caused unease in the citadels of power in U.S. society. More immediately, the source of the Black Power movement came from the interrelationship of the Northern Movement, in which Malcolm X was central, and the Southern Movement, 
in which the SNCC commanded the largest share of the foot soldiers. In 1964, according to Ahmad, the SNCC still believed that freedom could be achieved through nonviolent, peaceful change in the capitalist system. This was the logic of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which challenged the Dixiecrats at the Democratic National Convention in 1964. By 1964 Malcolm X had transcended the black Muslim theology of the period 1952-1962 and argued that African Americans were oppressed because their oppression served the interest of the white capitalist ruling class. Furthermore, the freedom struggle could not be limited to one tactic. Tactical flexibility was required to deal with any eventuality. Kwame Ture, formerly Stokely Carmichael, relates the story of freedom riders who traveled to Monroe, North Carolina home of the local NAACP, headed by Robert Williams, to show white support for the demands of Monroe blacks. The Freedom Riders, who were experienced in nonviolent protest, along with local youth had set up a picket line, which was set upon by an angry white mob. Bill Mahoney later told us, I just knew we were dead. Man, we were completely surrounded by angry white folk. People started jumping out of the crowd to take swings at us. People were bleeding. The threats got louder. It was only a matter of time before they swarmed over us. I had been watching this old, old toothless man in overalls getting hysterical. His face was all red and convulsed. He kept screaming, kill the niggas. Goddamn, kill them. Go on kill the niggies. Then I saw the old man's face suddenly change. He started pointing over my head. God damn it, he cried. Them niggas got guns. Them goddamn niggas got guns. The old cracker started jumping up and down, pointing and weeping and shaking with rage. God damn, he wailed. Them niggas got guns. Carmichael 2003 to 225 to 226. During 1964, SNCC members John Lewis and Donald Harris traveled to Africa, where Malcolm X was on tour meeting with a variety of people. Everywhere they went they were asked where they stood in relation to Malcolm. Malcolm had established a position that dramatically altered the image of African American freedom fighters in the eyes of Africans. Ahmad 2007 in Nairobi the SNCC delegation crossed paths with Malcolm, and they sat down together to discuss the issues. Malcolm impressed on the SNCC delegation that it was important to view the U.S. black freedom struggle in its human rights dimension and to recognize the role that Africa could play in supporting the African-American struggle for human rights. William Sales points out that Lewis and Harris recommended that the organization re-evaluate its position with regard to Malcolm's movement, and Lewis would later say that Malcolm, more than any other single personality, he had been able to articulate the aspirations, bitterness, and frustrations of the Negro people, forming, a living link between Africa and the civil rights movement in this country, sales 1994-129. Ahmad points out that the Nation of Islam had been the center of black nationalist activity during the late 1950s and early 1960s. In 1962-1963, several independent black student formations emerged outside of the South, all closely related to the Nation of Islam. Ahmad 2007-26. In Detroit there was Uhuru, in Chicago, the National Organization of African Americans, in Oakland, California, the African American Association, in Cleveland, the African American Institute, in New York, Umbra, and in Philadelphia, the Revolutionary Action Movement. As the traveling representative of the Nation of Islam, Malcolm was in contact with all of these organizations, Ahmad 2007-26. Muhammad Ahmad argues, as have others, that Malcolm's break with the Nation of Islam started in 1962, when Elijah Muhammad ordered him not to retaliate for a police raid on a Los Angeles temple that killed a member of the temple, a close friend of Malcolm's, and wounded several others. 
According to Ahmad, by 1963 a group of young Muslims left the Nation of Islam and formed the National Liberation Front. This group left the Nation of Islam prior to Malcolm's departure and adhered to a revolutionary nationalist position. When Malcolm left the Nation of Islam early in 1964, members of the National Liberation Front met with him and asked him if he wished to be the leader of their organization. Malcolm X accepted, and this organization became the core of Muslim Mosque Incorporated, Ahmad 2007 There was a nationalist wing close to Malcolm X in the Southern Student Movement as well, composed of people inside and outside of the SNCC. Its center was in the Afro-American Student Movement at Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. At the urging of the National Liberation Movement, the Afro-American Student Movement organized the first National Black Student Conference. Following Harold Cruz's brilliant article Revolutionary Nationalism and the Afro-American Ram Militants Viewed African America as a De Facto Member of the Non-Aligned Nations, as Part of the Bandung World. In November 1964, the second conference of the Afro-American Student Movement was held in Nashville with the theme The Black Revolution's Relationship to the Bandung World. In a 1965 article in the RAM journal Black America, The Relationship of Revolutionary Afro-American Movement to the Bandung Revolution, RAM argued that the central contradiction in the capitalist world was not the struggle between capital and labor but the struggle between Western imperialism and the Third World. The goal of the Black American Revolution was said to be the international eradication of Yankee, U.S. and NATO, imperialism, not integration into this decadent imperialist framework, RAM 1965 B-11. The article continued with a call for a revolutionary revision of Western Marxism. It argued that the failure of Marxism to revolutionize Western Europe and the United States during the 1930s Depression has forced African-American revolutionists to advocate Bandung humanism or revolutionary black internationalism. An earlier unsigned article in the same issue, The African-American War of National Liberation, Ram 1965A, notes that the bourgeois revolution of the West was founded, maintained, on national and international color and justice. It further argued that the nature of capitalist development and expansion was developed on the super-exploitation of dark-skinned peoples. As previous revolutions began to degenerate, the article argued, the world revolution took on more of a racial character, whether people of color liked it or not. During the previous 100 years, the majority of workers in the imperialist countries had been cut in on a share of the surpluses wrung from the labor of the exploited races and therefore had a stake in maintaining this system of exploitation, Ram 1965 A4. The historical reality, the article concluded, was that the subproletariat, not the proletariat, had become the vanguard of the revolution. African Americans were primarily located in the ranks of the subproletariat, although they lived in the belly of the beast which created certain contradictions and a form of duality that cut against the grain of revolutionary potential and also enhanced the possibilities of revolution. By 1965 this movement had reached what many felt to be an unprecedented level of political sophistication. In May 1964, Monthly Review published a special issue titled The Colonial War at Home, giving its readers among the U.S. and international left a sense of the new radical forces emerging out of the African-American movement. The issue featured an interview with Malcolm X by A.B. Spellman and excerpts from Max Stanford's Towards Revolutionary Action Movement Manifesto. The monthly review issue was a key document in making connections between black radicals and the broader U.S. left, but a year or so later, after black inner rebellions had dramatically transformed the relations of force between dominated blacks and the larger society, a series of exposes in Life magazine and Esquire identified Ram as one of the leading extremist groups plotting a war on whitey. Kelly and Esh 1999-20. The Peking-backed group was considered not only armed and dangerous but impressively well-read in revolutionary literature, 
from Marat and Lena de Mao, Che Guevara and France Fanon, Kelly and Esch 1999-20. These highly publicized articles were followed by police raids of the homes of RAM members in Philadelphia and New York City, and RAM members were charged with conspiracy to instigate a riot, poison police officers with potassium cyanide, and assassinate Roy Wilkins and Whitney Young.10. By 1969 RAM as an organization had essentially dissolved, but RAM was significant beyond its organizational structure, it was its network of members, people in its orbit, allies, and sympathizers. The names I have indicated above make up a very short list of individuals. There were many, many more. This social force saw African Americans in the United States as part of Lin Biao's global countryside.11 Some readers will recall that in Long Live the Victory of People's War. Lin Biao had argued that the world revolution would begin in the global countryside and that it would spread and surround the global cities. Kwame Nkrumah had also argued that as members of the revolutionary third world liberated their territories from the yoke of capitalism and imperialism, revolutionary conditions would come to exist in the capitalist metropoly, even in the belly of the beast, the fabled jewel of liberal capitalist civilization, the United States of America. Both these notions still make considerable sense, and indeed we see something like this happening although not in such a linear fashion. The main problem with the notion as propounded in the 1960s and 1970s is that the time frame did not take into consideration the plurality of social times noted by Fernand Brodel, and with the subsiding of the mass mobilizations during this revolutionary period, the cadres drew conclusions that their expectations and their tactics had been excessive, that their practice was characterized by a form of revolutionary romanticism that had led them to make mistakes in their estimate of the possible.12. The demise of RAM did not end this period, though. Out of the network of revolutionary activists that had been spawned by RAM, Malcolm X, the Nation of Islam, and the radicals of this period rose the Black Panther Party, with which most readers have some familiarity. While some have commented that the membership of the Black Panther Party did not have the same level of theoretical sophistication as the militants associated with RAM, Black Panther Party members, as good Maoists, placed their emphasis on practice, not in the revolutionary underground but in the public arena. They were masters of revolutionary theater, which Malefia Sandy, 1999, argues is a key element of strategy in a modern information society. By 1970 this network of revolutionary-minded youth, combined with other segments, of U.S. American activists had produced a complex network of individuals, organizations, and movements who manifested an oppositional spirit similar in density to that of the revolutionaries of the 1930s but more intense in its projection. Nixon's brutal invasion of Cambodia in May 1970 led to the largest explosion of protest on U.S. college campuses in the nation's history. By then a seemingly unbelievable four out of ten college students, nearly three million people, thought that a revolution was necessary in the United States. Business Week lamented, that the government's blunders in Cambodia and its clumsy repression of student protesters in such places as Kent State University in Ohio had more and more turned the academic community against the war, against business, and against government. The Business Week editors held this to be a most dangerous situation, a threat to the whole economic and social structure of the nation, Elbaum 2002-18-19. The New Left, in search of a more adequate ideology, turned to third-world Marxism as SDS split into more radical forces such as Weatherman and the Revolutionary Youth Movements, RYM. Within the Puerto Rican left, the Young Lords, El Comité, and the Puerto Rican Socialist Party won tens of thousands to revolutionary politics in the 1970s, Elbaum 2002-78, making Leninism the dominant perspective on the Puerto Rican left. While Third World Liberation movements had a powerful influence on all left-moving youth, 
For those with powerful communist movements in their homelands, community formation itself was linked to the deepening of a radical sensibility. The Third World strikes at San Francisco State and Berkeley were crucial in the evolution of Asian American radicalism. While cultural nationalism was a strong feature of Hispanic organizations such as the Brown Berets, Marxism was the dominant perspective in the Center for Autonomous Social Action CASA, which did not distinguish between Mexicans born north of the border and those born south of the border. Marxist ideas also were established in the Native American movement. Of course the story of black radicals is by now familiar, as most people know some of the histories of the Black Panther Party, the League of Black Revolutionary Workers, and the SNCC. Left organizations composed primarily of persons of color include the Communist League, later the Communist Labor Party, and now the League of Revolutionaries for a New America, Iwarkun, the August 29th Movement, and the Revolutionary Communist League, formerly the Congress of African People, which eventually merged to form the U.S. League of Revolutionary Struggle. The Black Workers' Congress split into a number of smaller groups. The Revolutionary Workers' League, which stemmed from the merger of People's College, Malcolm X Liberation University, and the Youth Organization for Black Unity, would later establish powerful links with the Young Lords Party offshoot the Puerto Rican Revolutionary Workers' Organization to form the short-lived Revolutionary Wing. The Workers' Viewpoint Organization, which stemmed from the Asian Study Group, became the Communist Workers' Party, which incorporated a significant number of cadres from the Revolutionary Workers' League. The Union of Democratic Filipinos united with members of the Third World Women's Alliance and the Northern California Alliance to form Line of March. The details of the U.S. Third World left is a story that I will tell elsewhere. I would like to turn to the story of interaction between the Chinese-American Red Guard Party and the Black Panther Party to illustrate the manner in which this period constituted what Omi and Winant, 1994, term a great transformation of racial meanings and practices. Grace Lee Boggs says that prior to the late 1960s, the term Asian-American did not exist. It was created by students and young adults of Asian descent who began to view the rebellion of African Americans as an inspiration for them to embrace a new radical identity for themselves, Boggs 1998-1. Before that time, Asian Americans were identified in terms of national descent, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, and Filipino Americans were the main groups. They were not regarded as a force because of their small number and because of their reluctance to challenge U.S. institutions. Just study hard and don't rock the boat was the advice of Boggs's parents, voicing the accommodationist rhetoric of the great African-American leader Booker T. Washington. But the Black Power movement was part of a global rising of oppressed strata that coincided with reforms such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Heart Cellar Immigration Act of 1965. According to Boggs, 2005, the Heart Cellar Immigration Act opened the way for a significant influx of immigrants from China, the Philippines. Korea, India and South Asia, and Southeast Asia, approximately 7 million between 1970 and 2000. On January 22, 1969, an organization called the Third World Liberation Front began a student strike at the University of California, Berkeley, demanding an autonomous Third World College, eventually they won a Compromise Ethnic Studies division. The strike ended March 14. This event is often cited as the beginning of the militant stance among Asian American students. Two weeks later a group of young Chinese Americans calling themselves the Red Guard Party held a rally in San Francisco's Chinatown to announce their 10-point program, modeled on the 10-point program of the Black Panther Party. Daryl Maeda argued that the Red Guard Party's style, language, and dress strongly resembled that of the Black Panther Party, which had exerted significant influence in the formation of the Red Guard Party, Maeda 2006-117.
Maeda tells us that the Red Guard Party was among the first radicals to arise from Asian American communities. The group would later become Iwarkun, one of the main Maoist organizations of what I call the post-1968 left. The Red Guard Party built community programs, organized Asian American workers, fought for better living conditions in Asian American communities, protested against the U.S. war in Vietnam, and was a leading organization of the post-1968 New Left, Maeda 2006-118. Maeda argues that the Red Guard Party exemplified an ideology that was key in the construction of Asian American identity, Third World Internationalist Radicalism. While this form of radicalism exercised brief hegemony over large segments of the U.S. left during the late 1960s and early 1970s, it was practically definitive of the African-American left of this period. The Black Panther Party was the most well-known exponent, but other proponents included RAM, the Freedom Now Party, the SNCC after Black Power, the Congress of African People, the African Liberation Support Committee, the Youth Organization for Black Unity, the National Association of Black Students. Malcolm X Liberation University, and People's College. Many of these groups merged with the offshoot of the Asian Study Group, later the Workers' Viewpoint Organization to form the Communist Workers' Party. Among Latinos were the Young Lords Party and the August 29th Movement, which would later unite with Iwar Kuhn and remnants of the Congress of African People to form the U.S. League for Revolutionary Struggle, Bush 1999-211. Maeda argues that the cultural issues raised regarding the relationship between Asian American identity and blackness in Frank Chin's play Chicken Coop Chinaman, are similar to the domestic cultural nationalism of the Black Pride movement of that same period. While Maeda agreed that in Chin's play the performance of blackness catalyzed the formation of Asian American identity, it was not mere mimicking as Chin leveled at the Red Guard Party. It involved a process of racial positioning through the contemplation of blackness, which enabled Asian Americans to form a racial identity rather than an ethnic or national identity, Maeda 2006-119. Maeda and others utilize Omi and Winnitz, 1994, conception of racial formation to explain the process that took place during this period. As many scholars argue, race itself is a social construction. So consciousness of the process avoids any puerile debates about the authenticity of Asian Americans as a race. Maeda also avoids the stark contrast between third world internationalism and domestic cultural nationalism that so plagued the relationship between the Black Panther Party and the U.S. organization during the late 1960s and early 1970s, of which there are some echoes in the debates about Afrocentrism on the left today.13. The more important implication for both approaches is a resistance to assimilation into whiteness. At the initial rally organized by the Red Guard Party, David Hilliard, chairman of the Black Panther Party, admonished the audience for the alleged lack of militancy of Chinese Americans. He also argued that it was important for them to relate to revolutionary China, the People's Republic of China. At the moment when Asian American assimilation seemed possible for the first time, the Black Panther Party urged them to reject assimilation, and the Red Guard Party accepted this admonition. It is important to understand that the Black Power movement was a moment of racial formation for blacks as well. In their elaboration of the Black Power concept, Carmichael and Hamilton, 1967, called for blacks to redefine themselves, reclaim their history and their culture, and create their own sense of community and togetherness. Maeda points out that they deemed assimilated and integrated blacks to be co-opted by whites and hence ineligible to participate in creating this new black community and identity. Maeda 2006-121-122. Unlike prior assimilationist groups, such as the Japanese American Citizen League, Maeda argues that the Asian American activists of this period viewed racism as systemic rather than an aberrant feature of U.S. society, 
they believed that the racial oppression of Asian Americans served to justify their economic exploitation, and thus they sought to build autonomous Asian American power and culture, free of white approval. Instead of inserting themselves into the mainstream, they sought to strengthen Chinatown's community institutions. Maeda points out that the political theater of rallies, marches, proclamations, and social programs, along with literary and cultural productions, produced a novel form of Asian American subjectivity by highlighting parallels between the common racialization affecting African Americans and Asian Americans of various ethnicities. The Asian American Political Alliance, founded in 1968 by Richard Aoki, a Japanese American who had been a member of the Black Panther Party, hoisted posters with Free Huey inscribed in Mandarin, Japanese, Tagalog, and English. Overall, this process is seen as having assisted in the construction of Asian American identity as a new form of subjectivity that rejected assimilation and consolidated multiple Asian ethnicities under the rubric of race. The importance of political theater should not be diminished. These posters in a variety of languages were carried by a group whose primary language was almost assuredly English. The Regard Party itself consisted of disaffected American-born Chinatown youth drawn from a community agency called Legitimate Ways, or Leeways which provided alternatives to street life and petty crime to youth who were faced with substandard housing, poor schools, overcrowding, and endemic poverty, Maeda 2006-126. The Critique of Identity Politics One can hardly mention the term black power or black nationalism without encountering what seems like an obligatory lecture from most intellectuals educated in the pan-European world about the dangers of identity politics, racial essentialism, and narrow nationalism. Some years back I heard that Robin D.G. Kelly and Todd Jitlin squared off over this issue at a conference at Columbia University. Afterward, Kelly was heard ruminating about the neo-enlightenment left. It seemed puzzling that the reflections of those who expressed so much regret about the twilight of our common dreams, Jitlin 1995, seemed so unaware or uninterested in the critique of the Eurocentrism of the dominant knowledge in the pan-European world. Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward, 1997 point out that Marx's great insight was that capitalism would lead increasingly to the concentration of wealth at one pole and the accumulation of poverty and misery at the other, thus uniting the working class, eliminating ancient differences, and paving the way for the emergence of a universal workers' movement. They argue further that this idea lent a certain hill onto the world socialist movement, which emboldened its members and strengthened them for the long haul. But the transformations of the last 30 years have undone this sense of international mission and universalism of the world's working classes. Instead we seem bombarded by particularisms, identity politics, and fractiousness, leading in some cases to genocidal conflicts along these lines of division. Piven and Cloward caution that this manner of presentation may be misleading because there have always been elements of identity politics in the workers' movement and because identity politics could be liberating as it binds people together in a sense of their common grievances against a common enemy. An example of the progressive role of identity politics can be seen in the United States in the post-World War II black movement and the feminist movements. These two movements are pointed out as examples of emancipatory constructions and assertions of group identity. But some observers also note that these assertions provoked alarm among those groups whose sense of identity depended on the subordination of blacks and women. The social and political tension around conflicting assertions of identity then became fodder used by political elites, who capitalized on the politics of backlash to oppose the expansion of the maneuvering space for blacks and women to be fully included in the American social compact. Republican Party operatives and others made the politics of backlash central to their appeals. This, of course, was the logic of the Republican Party's Southern strategy, including the so-called Moral Majority and the Christian Coalition. P. 
Piven and Cloward contend that racism and patriarchy are the twin appeals of this conservative coalition. Here the critique of identity politics is based on a fairly well-established discourse that seeks to evade the divide-and-conquer strategy of the ruling classes. There is also a concern in the larger arena of political discourse in that these particularisms seem to be leading to a rising tide of destructiveness in the contemporary world. This involves the weakening and collapse of nation-states, the accelerating migration of peoples, and the intensifying competition for scarce resources. Piven and Cloward think it important to demystify what is actually happening in the contemporary world. While the dominant discourse points out that ancient animosities arise whenever central government can no longer hold them in check, they do not deal adequately with the socio-structural basis of increased competition among social groups based on the social policies of dominant economic strata and institutions. The Eastern European Revolution is more about the right to shop than about the right to vote. How, then? Does one interpret the intensification of ethno-nationalism following the collapse of the socialist and social democratic projects? Do these events confirm or undermine Marx's projection that the promise of the labor movement is that class solidarity would override state patriotism? This indeed was the case when successful use of the strike weapon demanded it. But organized labor has lost ground from 30% of the private labor force in 1952 to 11% of the private labor force in 1980. The declining power of the labor movement is only one factor undermining the bargaining power of the working class, the constraints that globalization is said to place on the state are also construed to be constraints on democratic publics. The capitalist class has launched a withering ideological offensive about an increasingly globalized world operating according to natural law, penetrating national economies to their core and beyond the reach of politics. This is said to be the way of the future, a great force for progress, the hope of humankind. The workers' movement is no longer the moral force of old and is often in disarray, claiming, as Václav Havel says, that when people can no longer depend on rational knowledge, they cling to the ancient certainties of the tribe. 14 The logic of the increased competitiveness among social groups in the current period of neoliberal globalization seems to clinch any argument in opposition to identity politics and to augur for a stance that is perilously close to a need to accept the logic of neoliberal globalization because there is no alternative as was argued by the great prophets Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, who restored the majesty and confidence of the, white, Western world. While Piven and Cloward's reservations about the critique of identity politics are salutary, I would like to review two other kinds of response to the critique of identity politics, one a direct critique, the other a response to the implied critique. Linda Alcoff argues that the critique of identity involves three major issues. First, Strongly held cultural identities are how to lead to conflicting loyalties in the context of ethnic groups in a single nation-state. 15 She refers to Schlesinger's notion of the cult of ethnicity, which exaggerates differences, intensifies resentments and antagonisms, and deepens the wedge between various ethnic groups, Alkoff 2006-16-18. 16 Second, identity politics is also said to reify group identities, which lead to conformity based on a constructed model of authenticity intolerance of differences in the group, and patriarchal norms. Third, identity politics makes rational deliberation in the larger society impossible since the group's mandates will always prioritize the possible rather than rational deliberation, Alkoff 2006. Alkoff does not accept the manner in which identity groups are defined by their critics as the only definition possible. She cites an alternative definition by Manuel Castells, who views identity as a generative source of meaning necessarily collective rather than wholly individual, and useful as a source of agency as well as a meaningful narrative, Castells 1997-7.
She acknowledges that one source of reservation about the role that identity groups play in social organization is the fear that identities are really imposed on subordinate groups by the more powerful. She argues, however, that the identities that are imposed on the less powerful by those higher in status tend to reflect more an ascription than an identity that must resonate with an unified lived experience. For Alkov, then, identity is not simply constructed from error, it makes epistemic difference. It is a way of inhabiting, interpreting, and working through both collectively and individually, an objective social location and group history, Alkov 2006-22. Alkov concludes insightfully, in my view, that this means that when one is identified, one's horizon of agency is also identified. Social identity consequently is related to epistemic judgment, not so much because identity determines judgment but because they draw on a collective pool that impacts a horizon of perception relevant to the formation of knowledge claims or theoretical analysis. Given the universal claims of European phenomenology, an Africana phenomenology could be discovered or revealed only through pulling apart the imperial geography and its exclusive relationship between reason and European culture. Paget Henry argues that the dialectical logic of Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel's phenomenology was an attempt to retain the explanatory agency of spirit in light of the rise of the natural sciences. 17 Edmund Husserl's call for self reflection related to the crisis produced by the positivistically reduced notions of rationality and humanity that accompanied the rise of mathematics and science. Jurgen Habermas formulated this reduction in terms of the colonization of the Western life world by its systems of technical and instrumental rationality. Henry cites Jean-Paul Sartre's contention that the need for self-reflection derives more insistently than a mere intellectual exercise from the capacity of Western thought to mobilize reason in the service of unreason and untruth. Dubois' concept of double consciousness is the key to penetrating the veil of European phenomenology. Double consciousness, of course, is a product of the racialization of the Africana subject. For Dubois, this racialization of identities and supporting institutional orders were not leftovers from the traditional past but integral parts of the modern world order of European capitalism. It was as integral as the processes of commodification, colonization, rationalization, and secularization that Marx, Weber and Durkheim thought were so central to the rise Western capitalism. The growth of processes of racialization throughout the formative and mature periods of Western capitalism is evident in its expanding discourses on the hierarchies of races and the increasingly global reach of its institutions of white supremacy, Henry 2006-7. Dubois calls for black folks to stand above the loud tumult produced by the contradictions of black life in the European world, but he realizes that this takes a special effort which he describes as a fiercely sunny disposition, one quite unlike the disposition of some black people filled with bitterness and silent hatred of everything white, whose lives have been wasted in despair about the hopelessness of their situations. What is needed is for black folks to make use of their gift of second sight. In Dubois, our first glimpses of such critiques are to be found in his early short story, A Vacation Unique. In this story, Dubois' hero, Cuffy, invites his Harvard classmate to disguise himself as a Negro and to come and see the world from this point of view. Cuffy says to his classmate, outside of mind you may study mind, and outside of matter by reason of the fourth dimension of color you may have a striking view of the intestines of the fourth great civilization. In other words, what the classmate will get is an intestinal view of American civilization, of the hunger that drives it to dominate and racialize. This intestinal view of the white imperial self is repeated in dark water. In another of Dubois' classic statements of what I have called potentiated second sight. In the chapter, The Souls of White Folks, he writes, Of them I am singularly clairvoyant. I see in and through them. I view them from unusual points of vantage. Not as foreigner do I come, for I am native, not foreign, 
bone of their thought and flesh of their language. Rather I see these souls undressed and from the back and side. I see the workings of their entrails. I know their thoughts and they know that I know, Dubois 1999-17, Henry 2006-10. Jane Gordon, 2006, takes up the issue of double consciousness in a manner similar to that of Paget Henry, 2006. 18 She maintains that the need to establish a black or Africana viewpoint stems from the need to be able to assess the issue of legitimacy from modernity's underside, that is, from the perspective of people's intention with the social order whose standard of universality is precisely that which is hostile to these dominated peoples. Such people literally live in a society that does not have room for them. Gordon argues that they are perpetual outsiders evaluated by insider norms. The classic statement about this situation stems from W.E.B. Dubois' writings and commentary on double consciousness. Gordon credits Dubois with the insistence that racialized and racializing identities and the institutional orders that buttress and are buttressed by them are not remnants of earlier social and political forms but integral to the modern world system in the same way as commodification, rationalization, and secularization, Gordon 2006-1. She argues that it is important to note that Duboisian double consciousness is not simply having to live for the sake of another's consciousness but having to exist for the sake of a self-consciousness that racialized itself as white a process that is derived from the racialization of the Africana subject as black, Gordon 2006-3. Dubois' generation and subsequent generations had their own weapon readily at hand. In his Dark Water essay, The Souls of White Folk, Dubois wrote, High in the tower, where I sit above the loud complaining of the human sea, I know many souls that toss and whirl and pass, but none there are that intrigue me more than the souls of white folk. Of them I am singularly clairvoyant. I see in and through them. I view them from unusual points of vantage. Not as a foreigner do I come, for I am native, not foreign, bone of their thought and flesh of their language. Mine is not the knowledge of the traveler or the colonial composite of dear memories, words and wonder. Nor yet is my knowledge that which servants have of masters, or mass of class, or capitalist of artisan. Rather I see these souls undressed and from the back and side. I see the working of their entrails. Dubois 1999-17 Dubois asserts that he knows their thoughts and that they know that he knows them, which alternatively makes them embarrassed and furious. This special access to the dehumanizing will to power of the European imperial subject is a form of social power that undercuts the legitimacy of the ruling race and class in a fundamental manner. For it is this special insight of the black life world that makes it such a threat to the white life world's claims of universalism. It is the insider status of the former slaves that performs such a debilitating function, one that the white life world cannot escape and that therefore must be silenced at all costs. It is for this reason that U.S. society has sought to deal with the Negro question for so long and, failing to assimilate this troublesome presence, has sought to pronounce the presence null and void via the society's announcement that it is color-blind. In closing this chapter I would like to point out how the spirit of Bandung and the significance of black power as black internationalism are captured by the image of Malcolm X in Africa. For Malcolm X, the importance of the organization of Afro-American unity was that it sought to elevate the black freedom struggle above the domestic level of civil rights and to internationalize it by placing it at the level of human rights, Tyner 2006-134. In July 1964 Malcolm had submitted a brief on behalf of the organization of Afro-American unity at a Cairo meeting of the organization of African unity explaining that he represented 22 million Afro-Americans whose human rights were being violated daily by U.S. imperialists. Since these 22 million Afro-Americans were not in the United States by choice, he held that African problems are also Afro-American problems and Afro-American problems are African problems. 
he called for the Organization of African Unity to assist the Organization of Afro-American Unity in bringing their problems before the United Nations. Malcolm strategically stepped outside of the confines of the United States. He refused to go to the criminal and ask the criminal for civil rights when what the blacks in the United States really needed was to hold the criminal accountable in the court of world opinion for the violation of the God-given human rights of the African-American people. Malcolm's association between African-Americans and the dark world is hailed by James Tyner as a strategic move that presented a new balance sheet of power. While the civil rights discourse limited blacks to a position as minorities seeking integration and acceptance in U.S. society. Declaring solidarity with the dark world repositioned them as part of the majority in the larger world system, Tyner 2006-135-136. On the basis of this repositioning, Tyner then argues that the issue of African-American colonization is essentially a creature of the minority-majority reversal. Critics of the concept have argued on the basis of its impractical nature. Classically colonized people can eject the colonial power from their territories and send them home. But this is said not to be an option for African Americans, who are a minority in U.S. society. In this case Malcolm viewed African American liberation as part of the worldwide struggle against white supremacy. Arthur Schlesinger Jr. argues that the militants of ethnicity are promoting a separatism which, nourishes prejudice, magnifies differences and stirs antagonisms, Schlesinger 1991-17. This cult of ethnicity has come to represent a significant threat to what he views as the defining ethos of American nationhood. Some may see in Schlesinger's claims an echo of the post-Reconstruction era attacks on blacks to achieve national reconciliation. Coincidental? Let us look further. Schlesinger holds that Americans are a new race of men, the best hope of all humanity, drawing on J. Hector St. John Krevker's letters from an American farmer, 1788. Schlesinger neglects to say, however, that Krevker's universal man was either a European or a descendant of a European, Singh 2004-34. Black intellectuals and activists who have challenged the false universalism of the U.S. intelligentsia and public discourse have suffered exile, repression, ostracism, and assassination, Sing 2004-42. Black particularity, much disparaged in a range of U.S. social thought, has often been a search for a wider struggle for social justice, and while drawing on values of the Euro-American canon such as liberalism and Christianity, it has also reached beyond the boundaries of the U.S. political imagination to Islam. International Socialism, Black Nationalism, Third World Marxism, and the like, Sing 2004-42. Black folks' claim to worldliness, Al Archard Wright, has challenged not only particularism masquerading as universalism but also a universalism whose vicious opposition to black humanity has revealed its true nature. Thus, black anti-racism discourse and communal identity are not about and cannot be reduced to integration into U.S. society. Rather, they represent the counterstatements of political subjects who have struggled to widen the circle of humanity, Singh 2004-44. This may be more difficult for some to see in the rhetoric of the black internationalism of the black power militants, but I argue that this attempt to widen the circle of we was the dominant framework not only of the explicit black power radicals but of the civil rights radicals as well. It's expressed nowhere as clearly as in the 1960s trajectory of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and the older civil rights radicals, who moved from a desire to simply be included in the U.S. mainstream, to a critique of U.S. society from the perspective of the larger world. The Trajectory of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In 1963 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. articulated his vision of the future as 250,000 demonstrators marched on Washington. I say to you today, my friends, that in spite of the difficulties and frustrations of the moment, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. 
Black Power, The American Dream, and The Spirit of Bandung 211. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will be judged not by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips stripping with the words of interposition and nullification that one day, right here in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. Washington 1986-219. This was King's hope. He called for freedom to ring throughout the land. Then he concluded. When we let freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up the day when all God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Washington 1986-220. Dr. King's dream was a testament to the American dream. It was a revival and a deepening of the American dream. One might say that it called for the completion of the great unfinished American Revolution. The audacious optimism in King's remarks reflects the anticipation of victory in battle. While King did not fear to appropriate the American dream as the legitimate right of black people, he did not hesitate to chastise America for failing to deliver on its promise. Within a year or so after the 1963 March on Washington, legislation had been passed that broke the back of Jim Crow and de jure segregation. The Civil Rights Revolution had overcome the reactionary caste system of the Old South. But what of those outside the South? where a segregated and marginalized urban proletariat lived in squalid conditions despite their access to formal citizenship rights. Some social scientists, historians, journalists, and political leaders readily conceded that the sentiments of this segment of the black population have been more accurately expressed by Malcolm X, who argued that black people should have no illusions about being included in the American dream. Rather, the reality of black people in America was an American nightmare. He said just because kittens are born in an oven, you don't call them biscuits. You can't sit at the table and throw us a few crumbs from the table and call us Americans. Malcolm X said you could not go to the criminal and ask for civil rights, you had to take the criminal to the world court and sue for denial of your human rights. Malcolm was involved in a process of re-articulating the American dream, or perhaps he sought to abolish the American dream. In 1964 Dr. Martin Luther King was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. He most certainly deserved it. But Martin Luther King and the movement he led most emphatically refused to abide by an unjust peace and massively abridged that peace, over and over again. Now, clearly the Nobel Committee had another kind of peace in mind, namely the peaceful settlement of the collective grievances of America's former slaves in their quest for full citizenship. America's liberal establishment had long tolerated the second-class status of its black population, however, and considered civil rights agitation disruptive to the ruling coalition and harmful to the cause of black people themselves. Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail applied to a much larger group than the Southern white moderates. For some in the black community, there is a clear logic to the Nobel Committee's decision to award the world's most prestigious peace prize to a man who led so many demonstrations, which made it impossible to do business as usual. When Malcolm X was considered as an alternative, Dr. King, for all of his troublemaking, seemed a more desirable alternative. After the emergence of Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam into the nation's public life, 
Dr. Martin Luther King's ideas and person were cynically juxtaposed to Malcolm's, while Malcolm's views were parodied. After King's death, those who hated him in life cynically twisted his message to their own ends. Consider the following. Some years ago, on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, the Reverend Al Sharpton attempted to lead a march across the Brooklyn Bridge, New York City Mayor Giuliani condemned the marches as a violation of the spirit of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It was an abridgment of the peace. And then they intoned with the most cynical hypocrisy imaginable that Martin Luther King Jr. was an apostle of peace. I am reminded of the comments of the poet Carl Wendell Himes Jr. Now that he is safely dead. Let us praise him. Build monuments to his glory sing hosannas to his name. Dead men make such convenient heroes, they cannot rise to challenge the images we would fashion from their lives and besides. It is easier to build monuments than to make a better world. So, now that he is safely dead we, with eased consciences, will teach our children that he was a great man, knowing that the cause for which he lived is still a cause in the dream for which he died. Is still a dream, a dead man's dream. Harding 1996-3-4 What is perhaps most ironic is that the institutionalization of King as a national hero was overseen by some of his most vicious opponents, President Ronald Reagan and George Bush, and in the midst of the most ferocious assaults on the dream in modern times. For these people the bottom line was unequivocal, they desired passivity in the face of this ferocious assault. You might say, let them eat holidays. For King nonviolence was a means to protest injustice without bitterness and hatred, but it was not about keeping the peace in an unjust or unfair situation. King's focus was on ending racial injustice or white racism, but he also fought to end economic injustice and the bullying of small countries by large ones. He said that when he died he did not want people to say that he had won a Nobel Prize, nor to mention where he went to school. He said he wanted people to say that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. He wanted them to know that he tried to love somebody. He wanted people to know that he tried to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. He wanted people to know that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr was a drum major for justice, a drum major for peace, a drum major for righteousness. King wanted to be viewed as a drum major for peace, but he did not believe there could be peace if there was no justice. He did not believe that any people should peacefully accept injustice. The fight for justice was the most important thing, but the fight should be done with love and without bitterness. The legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and of the civil rights movement that he led was not peace and harmony, but no justice, no peace.19. The 1963 March on Washington was an attempt to draw the attention of the people of the United States and the people of the world to the sorry situation of black people in the United States, subject to unjust laws that discriminate against them. Dr. Martin Luther King accused the United States of having written the Negro people a bad check, one that had come back marked insufficient funds. Yes, King had a dream, but the realization of this dream was not imminent. Indeed, on Christmas Eve 1967, He told his congregation at Ebenezer Baptist Church that not long after the speech in Washington, D.C., he saw his dream turn into a nightmare. The revolution in the streets of the black ghettos and in the jungles of Vietnam exposed the ruthless and cold-blooded nature of the U.S. social system. Dr. King was challenged by Malcolm X and by the youthful foot soldiers of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He learned from them and synthesized the lessons of this history. While in Ghana, Malcolm also solidified his ties with representatives of radical third-world nations such as China, Cuba, and Algeria. The Algerian ambassador Tahir Kide was a Muslim and a revolutionary but would have been classified as a white man in the United States. When Malcolm argued that he followed the social, political, and economic philosophy of black nationalism in the United States and Africa, 
Tahir Khyde asked where that left him. Malcolm began to think about how one related to the non-black revolutionaries from the three continents, Africa, Asia, and Latin America. From that time, he began to understand the contradictions of nationalism. He told an OA audience we nationalists used to think we were militant. We were just dogmatic, Brightman 1965-213. This did not mean that he became an integrationist. Indeed, Malcolm's contribution consisted of his internationalization of the struggle. He convinced a whole generation of youth, both black and non-black, to see themselves as part of the majority of the world's people struggling against an imperialist white ruling class and their privileged white populations in the United States and Western Europe. Malcolm's revolutionary legacy led to a fundamental transformation of the consciousness of an entire generation of black, Latino, Asian, Native American, and white youth, and also of older activists. Dr. Martin Luther King was a part of this transformation. Malcolm X did seek to ally with the radicals in the civil rights movement, and through them was able to effect an alliance with Martin Luther King himself. Toward the end of his life Martin Luther King Jr. began to sound more like Malcolm. He called for a movement that would cripple the operations of an oppressive society until it was ready to listen to the cries and see the real fires of the poor, Harding, 1996-18. In addition, he argued, the dispossessed of this nation, the poor, both white and negro, live in a cruelly unjust society. They must organize a revolution against that injustice, Harding 1996-18. Rather than depending on a friendly federal government, in this new period Martin Luther King held that Negroes must, therefore, not only formulate a program, they must fashion new tactics which do not count on government goodwill, but serve instead, to compel unwilling authorities to yield to the mandates of justice, Harding 1996-19. Martin Luther King held that the Negro revolt is evolving into more than a quest for desegregation and equality. Black freedom struggle was actually exposing the evils that are deeply rooted in the whole structure of our society. It reveals systemic rather than superficial flaws and suggests that radical reconstruction of society itself is the real issue to be faced, Harding 1996-20. Finally, he predicted, the storm is rising against the privileged minority of the earth, from which there is no shelter in isolation or armaments. The storm will not abate until a just redistribution of the fruits of the earth enables men everywhere to live in dignity and human decency. The American Negro, may be the vanguard of a prolonged struggle that may change the shape of the world, as billions of deprived shake and transform the earth in the quest for life, freedom, and justice, Harding 1996-21. With these words one can almost hear the assassin put a round of ammunition in the chamber of the gun. Could the servants of the ruling strata in the nation's security apparatus allow such a man to live? These words may have constituted Dr. King's death warrant. He had gone beyond the pale. But the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation had already reached the conclusion that Dr. King could not be allowed to continue as a black leader. Indeed, in 1963 J. Edgar Hoover said he intended to destroy the civil rights movement because it was the leading edge of a social revolution in the United States. Hoover had Dr. Martin Luther King in mind but quickly saw the potential of Malcolm X and sided with Elijah Muhammad, Louis Farrakhan and others in the Nation of Islam to remove Malcolm from the scene. Malcolm was the preeminent revolutionary leader of this century. He had developed alliances with revolutionaries throughout the three continents. He had established relations with the radicals in the civil rights movement, in the SNCC, RAM, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and the Congress of Racial Equality. Dr. Martin Luther King's lawyer had met with Malcolm to form a coalition in which Dr. Martin Luther King would continue to lead those forces in the South where he had established a powerful force, and Malcolm would lead those forces outside of the South. 
Dr. Martin Luther King agreed to support Malcolm in his efforts to take the United States before the United Nations for the violation of the human rights of the African American people. It was the joining together of these two trajectories at last that seemed to point the way to the future, though the counterintelligence program labored mightily to disrupt the possibility of these two strands coming together. What is clearer now than it was then is that it is precisely this attempt to widen the circle of the we that was so adamantly opposed because it poses questions that the concept of citizenship elides but that it is supposed to address. The notorious exceptionality of the black populations was the focus of a concerted effort to turn the clock back in the manner of the Ku Klux Klan march from Atlanta to Selma, symbolically turning the clock back on the gains of the civil rights movement, but also in this case abandoning the responsibility for the general welfare that should be the responsibility of any civilized society. The liberal Eurocentrism of the Enlightenment had been the cultural foundation of the period of social democratic compromise in the core states of the world system and to some extent of the radical semi-peripheral states of the pan-European world as well. In hindsight, many now view this period as the golden age of historical capitalism, but it has also brought us to the limits of the system because this compromise could not be extended to the rest of the world without exhausting the limits of the profit-maximizing logic of historical capitalism on a world scale. The ruling classes of the hegemonic power in its twilight are searching for an alternative strategy but are terrified that the preemptive warriors of the far right are the only plausible answer to the this crisis of U.S. hegemony, which is accompanied by a crisis of white world supremacy, and finally by a structural crisis of historical capitalism. The golden age of capitalism enabled subaltern strata in the belly of the beast and in its periphery to glimpse larger possibilities for social transformation and to attempt to realize them. In the meantime, the harsh rhetoric against those subaltern strata has been ratcheted up. Civil tensions in the United States are at an unprecedented level, giving rise to a dramatic expansion of the carceral state and what Steve Martinot, 2003, refers to as the Paris State.20 It is not merely ironic that this be juxtaposed to the historic moment of Barack Obama's run for President of the United States, and his final victory over Hillary Clinton in the Democratic Party primary, and over John McCain and Sarah Palin in the presidential election. Barack Obama and the End of White World Supremacy The foundation of the Barack Obama's successful presidential bid is the historical strength of black solidarity against systemic racism in the United States and of its internationalist stance in the larger world system. The black freedom struggle with its foundation in large sections of the lower strata of U.S. society is a large block of any left within U.S. society. It is also important to note its very conscious self-conception of itself as a segment of oppressed strata within the United States and within the larger world system. Note should be taken of gender dynamics as well for the manner in which black women have been so central to that struggle, and in contesting the notion of manhood rights. I have argued here that systemic racism is the foundation of the new world formed with the European conquest of the Americas, the destruction of the Amerindian civilizations, and the capture of Africans to serve as slave labor in the colonial societies. It was at this time that the concept of race was introduced into scientific and public discourse as a means of naturalizing the relationship between the conquerors and the conquered, and was generalized to the entire world economy during the subsequent European conquest of the rest of the world. As I argue throughout this book, the enslaved Africans, unlike the indigenous populations, were a part of the newly formed United States of America, and were living contradictions to the land of the free rhetoric of the nation's propagandists. Their incorporation into U.S. American society, even as second-class citizens would remain the Achilles' heel, not only to U.S. pretensions of freedom and democracy, but would also constitute the foundation of its internally colonized periphery, or third world within. The growth of this racialized populations disproportionately concentrated in the lowest social classes is a very unstable mix. 
Melanie Bush and I will explore this at length in our forthcoming Tensions in the American Dream, Temple University Press, 2010, but I would like to highlight how these tensions illuminate where we stand at this historical moment. Black particularity has long haunted the imaginary of the U.S. American elite and large segments of the pan-European population, as well, because their relative privileges and their relatively higher social status rested on the racial foundation provided by people of African descent and other people of color. Needless to say this creates substantial social tension between the groups and a sense of defensiveness when blacks and other people of color raise questions about a naturalized system meant precisely to be invisible. Bush 2004, Macintosh 2008, Bonilla Silva 2003 As we have seen black solidarity and black internationalism within the United States has taken a variety of political forms. This includes the liberal nationalism and anti-colonialism of the Pan-African Conference and Dr. Du Bois at the turn of the century the militant and assertive black solidarity of the Niagara Movement of 1905, and the race-first radicals of the New Negro Movement whose leaders included Marcus Garvey, Hubert Harrison, Cyril Briggs, Richard Moore, W.A. Domingo, and Claude McKay. Even the class-first radicals of the New Negro Movement, A. Philip Randolph and Chandler Owen, were firm practitioners of black solidarity and black internationalism. In the 1920s and 1930s W.E.B. Dubois forcefully challenged the false universalism of both the center and the left within the U.S. American and pan-European body politic while building alliances with radical nationalist movements and independent governments in the dark world, and beginning a dialogue with revolutionaries in the Soviet Union who were not quite white by the standards of that time. In the 1930s and 1940s many of these forces, Dubois, Paul Robeson, Richard Wright, Ralph Ellison, C.L.R. James, Angelo Herndon, Oliver Cromwell Cox, E. Franklin Fraser, Ralph Bunch, Abram Harris, George Padmore, Shirley Graham, Claude Lightfoot, John Henry Clark, constituted a black popular front which stood in the forefront of the struggle for defining the black freedom struggle as one against racism and imperialism, and for U.S. involvement in the construction of Henry Wallace's Century of the Common Man, as opposed to the imperialist project of an American century. During the 1950s and early 1960s the continuing influence of the race-first radicals influenced the move to the left within the Nation of Islam under the leadership of Malcolm X, Muhammad Ahmed, and others. During this same period remnants of the Black Popular Front connected with Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement, including young militants in both SNCC and the Nation of Islam. It could not have escaped the attention of American elites that the black population in the United States has constituted the most consistent base and leadership of the U.S. left since the time of the Great Migration, 1910-1920. What is surprising is that the Clintons thought that Hillary Clinton could so easily win the formerly solid South, since whites left the Democratic Party in such large numbers after the civil rights legislation of 1964 and 1965. After all why is it that the Republicans use a Southern strategy? But the Southern strategy is dead, has been dead since at least the 2000 election, when voter suppression was used to win elections and to give the voting public a sense of its infallibility. So McCain slash Palin's attempt to utilize the Southern strategy, but with echoes of the KKK carried little currency with most of the voting public. They clearly had not seen the handwriting on the wall. After all what is the logic of attempting to connect the Southern strategy with anti-immigrant hysteria? Any thought given to the votes of the Latino population in key states in the Southwest? When Barack Obama entered onto the national stage he struck me as something of a synthesis of the black sociologist William Julius Wilson and Jesse Jackson during his Rainbow Coalition phase. Wilson argued in the late 1970s that race had declined in significance in determining the life chances of black people, Wilson 1978. 
In the late 1980s he argued that universal programs which address the structural roots of oppression were more important and more politically viable than race-specific programs like affirmative action, Wilson 1987. The subtext was quite straightforward in my view. If you talk about racism to most whites it ends the conversation, and becomes a wedge issue used by Republicans. It is better to emphasize class so one can construct a progressive political coalition that can address the roots of the problems of social subordination, of which racism is only a symptom. This summarizes a great deal of very sophisticated research, but there is not space for a more elaborate presentation. This was confirmed for me some time later when I learned that Reverend Jeremiah Wright had said that Obama was beginning to sound like Wilson, who by the way had spent many years on the faculty of the University of Chicago. Part of the strategy that the elites turned to in the 1970s was a policy of benign neglect which Daniel Patrick Moynihan explicitly recommended to President Nixon. It was a policy of taking the issue of racial oppression off the table. Whenever people of color raised the issue they were accused of playing the race card. In 1986 when the issue of racism was given a high profile by the mob which chased a black youth to his death in Howard Beach, Queens, the issue of justice and equality for black people regained the high profile it had enjoyed for much of the post-war period. One group of organizers called for a boycott of white businesses. But Jesse Jackson argued that such tactics did not attack the real source of the problems. He asserted that we needed to move away from the racial battleground to the economic common ground, and that the boardrooms of the New York Times, ABC, CBS, and NBC, were more segregated than Howard Beach, Horn 1987. Obama seemed to differ from Jackson because he was more careful than Jackson to avoid being labeled as simply a black politician. He also moved strategically to capture a significant section of the political center, unlike the Rainbow Coalition which was much more left in its stance. To do so he played the race-neutral card with deliberateness and consistency in an environment where accusation of playing the race card would be used by the color-blind racists of the Republican Party to neutralize one's ability to appeal to the white electorate. And of course there are some who want to use Obama's success as an indication that the nation is overcoming its racial divisions. This is of course nonsense. Racism is systemic, it is the foundation of the modern world system, of historical capitalism. And it is part of our common sense, structured into our superegos. But I do think that the Southern strategy is dead. Has been dying since 2000, but voter suppression has been used effectively to give us a sense that it is still in power. People of color are becoming too large a demographic to simply dismiss by demonizing blacks and Latinos, especially when Samuel Huntington has been fanning the flames of apocalyptic cultural clashes with long academic tomes about the Hispanic threat, the Muslim threat, and the Chinese threat. Who has forgotten his 1970s declaration that the US and the world suffer from too much democracy? The pushback against white world supremacy has been integral to the rise of oppressed strata throughout the 20th century. It is not separate from the increased power of working people, women, and increased opposition, or at least a relaxation of, heteronormativity. The relations of force between the dominant forces and the subordinate forces within the world system have been altered in favor of subordinate forces over the long durée of the world system. It consists of a need for decolonization of the U.S. empire both internally and externally. 21 This thrust will continue, whatever Obama does. But his election is a consequence of the slow change in relations of force both internally as people of color increase their numbers within U.S. society, and their strength within the world system. While there is great concern among some leftist intellectuals and activists about what Obama will do, the people that I met while doing Godwin North Philadelphia on November 4 were very clear that this election represented a potential change in the country that would require continued struggle by the people themselves to advance the agenda toward the change that we need.